with a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. It's the Friday edition, which means we have the Friday panel coming up in about a half hour's time. But to start today's program, it is the Friday morning front burner from CBC News. Hello, I'm Angela Starrett. Let me tell you, Monday is going to be a big day in the Starrett House. That's when the B.C. government is going to start sending out invites to families with kids aged 5 to 11 to get their COVID-19 vaccines. My son is 11, and I've had him registered for this since October 4th. Both of us are stoked for this moment. For him, it's a weight off his shoulders. He's had friends get sick with COVID, and he doesn't want to get it too. For me, well, seeing my son get the vaccine is also really critical to me. Not just as a mom, but as an Indigenous person who's part of many communities filled with elders and immunocompromised people. People who I don't want to get sick. I've been thinking about this ever since the first pediatric Pfizer vaccines landed in Canada this past weekend. Provinces have been moving fast to get them into arms. The first 10 kids got their jabs in Ontario on Tuesday. More kids in Quebec, Manitoba and Saskatchewan started getting jabs on Wednesday. To break down what's happening with these shots, how they work and what's happening with the federal rollout, we're talking to Dr. Fatima Kakar. She's a pediatric infectious disease specialist based in Montreal. Hi, Fatima. Hello. So how are you feeling knowing that the vaccine is now going to be available to kids in this younger age group? I think it's such a great thing. And this is the age group right now that's having the most number of infections. And really, the rest of the world has all gone on and things have gone back to normal. But we have to realize that for the under 12s, life has really not gone back to normal. And so this gives them the security and really the ability um, to go back to the activities and, and really the socialization that's so essential for their health. So I'm very excited for the under 12s. You know, we hear a lot about how resilient kids are, but what have you seen from kids struggling with their mental health during this pandemic? According to recent studies, there has been a 17% jump in anxiety diagnoses in children 17 and younger over the past 10 years. The indirect impact this pandemic is having on our nation's children in the form of increased poverty, higher risk of violence in the home, and often deteriorating states of mental health. Suicide is now the leading cause of death for children ages 10 to 14. No, if that doesn't shake our nation to the core, I don't know what will. Our hospitals were overwhelmed last year, first of all, with adolescents. Um, severe psychosis, depression, eating disorder, all of those caused by really essentially being home and being away from their routine. And we thought the younger kids might not be so affected, but we're actually now seeing developmental delays. We're seeing poor school performance, poor mm. attention. And then we can't ignore anxiety. So kids pick up on anxiety um, and that idea that they might be the ones to get COVID and worse to bring home COVID to potentially grandparents or fragile parents. There are a lot of kids living with a lot of anxiety. And I, I just wanted to ask you about, I guess, the the, the risks that the, this age group faces in Canada. I mean, in BC, we saw this over and over again, this narrative that 
children in school were at a low risk. But we know that children under 12 now account for the highest number of COVID-19 infections in Canada. The chief public health officer, Dr. Teresa Tam, said those under 12 currently represent over 20% of daily cases, despite only representing 12% of the country's population. Can you put those numbers in perspective for me? Absolutely. So, and you mentioned it's very important that, yes, kids in this age group are not severely sick from COVID. So even though they're representing across country anywhere from 20 to 40% of new cases, um, this is a huge number. They're not that many in hospital. And so there's not a surge of COVID cases in hospital. Um, so they are being infected and there are many more being infected than we actually test positive. And, and so that's important to realize. So kids are not overwhelming the hospital system. But in that number of kids that's getting infected, there are some that get severely sick. And there are some that are getting this post-COVID inflammatory syndrome. We're, we're promoting this vaccine uh, because some kids are getting sick. And the more kids we have, the more at risk for these severe outcomes. that. What is post-COVID inflammatory syndrome? Yeah, and this is a great question because even just last week I had a case and the parents aren't always aware of what this is. So -hmm. these are kids who had COVID and sometimes it's mild, sometimes asymptomatic. And about four to six weeks after their COVID infection, they start having these really, really high fevers. And these fevers tend to last for a few days. And then they have a lot of symptoms, for example, rash and just feeling really unwell. And by the time they come to hospital, they can go into severe shock to the point where they need to go into the ICU because of such severe inflammation in their body. So it's inflammation in the blood and in the heart. And thankfully, we haven't had any deaths from this here in Canada, but we've had a large number of kids go to the ICU. Uh, My case last week, you know, really, really severe. And just quickly, how common is this? How common is post-COVID inflammatory syndrome? So we're, we're trying to put the numbers together where it's not very common. So it's still uh, rare. We're estimating in Canada, we're about six and a hundred thousand. So we've had about three to 400 cases since the start of the pandemic. So it's a rare complication, but it can be a severe one. And in other countries, they've seen um, what we call long-term heart effects, where there's aneurysms in the heart. And there have been some deaths overseas from this syndrome. So let's talk about the vaccine itself. What vaccine will kids be getting and how is it different than the regular Pfizer vaccine? Right. So it is going to be the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, the Moderna one's still under study, so that might come out later, but right now it's the Pfizer. And so it's the exact same component. It's this mm-hmm. mRNA vaccine, which the body uses to make proteins, the spike protein against the COVID virus. Now, the difference, the key differences are the dose. So the adult dose is 30 micrograms. The kid's dose is 10 micrograms, which is a third of the dose. And there's a difference in the um, buffer, the thing, the, the liquid that we use to keep it stable. The buffer we're using is called TRIS instead of PBS. And it's a technical thing, but it's something that we've always been using in vaccines. So it's nothing new that's been created. And then the actual amount that's going to go into the child is different. So the vials are different. Um, It's an orange top versus a purple top from adults. And it's going to be 0.2 ml. So a very small volume that's going to go in.
I guess one thing that parents might have concerns or questions about is that uh, while this is a different dosage than the adult dose, the same dosage will be given to age kids ages five to a kid that's you know almost twelve years old. What, what's the rationale for this being a cohesive age group that will all get the same dosage? So it's important to realize that vaccines are different from medications and antibiotics, for example. So when we're giving uh, an antibiotic, we want a specific dose that's going to have an amount in the blood. So we do dose it per kilo. So it's in milligrams per kilo of child. With vaccines, what we're looking for is just the minimum amount of antigen exposure that's going to trigger the immune system. And so what we do is we dose vaccine based on the child's developmental age and essentially the immunological maturity of the child. And so that age range from 5 to 12 is really uh, very uniform as far as how their immune systems respond. So we don't need to dose it according to the weight of the child. It's really the child's developmental um, uh, progression as far as their immune progression. And that's pretty constant between that 5 to 12 age group. Once we hit puberty, there's a lot of hormonal changes and mm. gradually your immune system starts to slow down. You just mentioned testing and I'm curious about that, ab- about the trials that this uh, pediatric vaccine in particular, I'm curious about who was, how many kids got the shot, who got the shot and what did we see? Can you can you walk me through one of those trials or how this worked for the testing for this age group? Absolutely. So it's actually a really, it's a very interesting story. And if parents want to know more, the NASA statement really has a great description of the clinical trial. So in the first phase, they looked at trying to find the right dose. So they actually gave four kids the 30 microgram dosing and they realized that the reaction was so strong. They had really side effects, fever, chills. So there was an internal review committee that said, let's go down to the lower dose based on this reaction. And so then they studied this lower dose in about 300 kids and they were able to measure that these 300 kids had a, uh, an appropriate immune response. So the level of antibodies that was equivalent to the higher dose. And then they went ahead and studied it in a larger group of kids. So essentially about 3,000 kids um, across sites, mostly in the U.S., got this vaccine. Mm. And then there were about 1,500 who didn't get any who were called the controls. And what they did is they looked at uh, COVID cases among the those who were vaccinated and those who were in the control group. And there was about a 90%, 91% effectiveness against getting COVID among those who had the vaccine. On 93.1 CFIS FM, that is part one of the Friday morning front burner from CBC News. Part two coming up in a moment here on After Nine. In a confused and broken world, truth, hope, and light are found in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Join us Sundays at 7.30 p.m. as we host Pastor Chris Gordon of Abounding Grace Radio. Pastor Gordon preaches from all of the scriptures with a special focus on how they testify about Jesus. Brought to you by Prince George Canadian Reformed Church. Don't miss Abounding Grace Radio Sunday evenings at 7.30 here on 93.1 CFIS-FM. 
The Q3 Creative Business Hub is now home to the Q3 Community Market. Saturdays from 8.30 to 2, stop by to check out a wide variety of vendors and the great display of Christmas gift ideas. Homemade crafts, jewelry, unique items, you're going to find products only available at the Q3. Located kitty corner to the Farmer's Market, the Q3 Community Market. Saturdays from 8.30 to 2 in the Q3 Creative Business Hub at the corner of Quebec and 3rd. The UNBC Timberwolves, in partnership with apparel supplier Kahunaverse, have opened an online shop. Everyone is invited to order a new jersey featuring the design work of Gitsan artist Trevor Angus. The jerseys are available in soccer and basketball designs. Choose the style you prefer in your size and have it customized with your favorite number. Jersey orders end on December 8th. To order your custom UNBC Timberwolves jersey, visit bookstore.unbc.ca. Forecast from Environment Canada. A mix of sun and cloud this morning, then clearing. A high of plus one with a wind chill this afternoon to minus eight. Increasing cloudiness tonight. A wind up to 15K, a low of minus 7 with a wind chill to minus 13. For Saturday, cloudy with periods of snow in the morning and ending late in the afternoon. Wind from the southeast to 20 gusting to 40 in the morning, a high of 2 with a morning wind chill to minus 13. Featuring the people who make things happen in Prince George, you're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS FM. And now part two of your Friday morning front burner from CBC News. I want to talk about side effects. I'm I'm curious if there are any side effects of the vaccine that may be different from the vaccine side effects for adults. So in general, um, kids do have a stronger immune response, but I think with the lower dose, they're going to have less of that. So the immediate response will be similar to adults, the sore arm, uh, a little bit of pain, a little bit of redness at the injection site. What's interesting is the systemic effects. So the fevers, the chills, the feeling like you've been run over by a truck, those have been less frequent in kids than in adults. And then the one side effect that we're looking out for that was seen in adolescents and and, and young adults, mostly males, is the risk of myocarditis, inflammation of the heart. Um, Again, a rare risk, but it was seen in these older adolescents and young adults. Um, And so far, there have been no cases described in kids, but that's one of the side effects we're potentially watching out for. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Uh, What could happen if you you get this condition? So myocarditis is inflammation around the heart. Um, And the way it usually presents is chest pain, uh, what we call palpitation. So like a fluttering feeling in your heart and maybe shortness of breath. Generally, not fever, not chill. So it's really just an abnormal tightening of the chest. Um, and it's very rare. We're estimating it about three in 100,000 in that older age group. And it's really been seen in males. Now, we've had a few cases of myocarditis here in Canada. But in general, and really the cases we've had either got better without any treatment or got better with mild anti-inflammatory treatment. We haven't had cases in youth that have needed intensive care or intensive treatment, and all of them have recovered. So it's really a, it's a temporary inflammation around the heart. I remember there was a, a young uh, male hockey player who got this condition as well, but it was from it was from COVID nineteen rather than the vaccine. That happens as well, right? Uh, Archie, when he came across uh, up from the states, uh, had to quarantine for fourteen days. Coming out of his quarantine, he tried to skate for a few days and just wasn't feeling right. So we got a bunch of tests done with him and. What the test showed is at some point this summer, he'd had COVID. Since then, has been diagnosed with myocarditis. So 
he, uh, the doctors are taking care of him. He's getting a bunch more tests done, but ultimately he's out indefinitely right now. Absolutely. And actually, it's more common to get myocarditis from having COVID or sometimes that post-COVID syndrome than it is from the vaccine. If you get COVID, there is, especially in young adults and in young children, there is a risk of myocarditis. And so it is something that can be severe with COVID. And the risk is actually greater from COVID than it is from the vaccine. So Health Canada has approved a minimum of three weeks between the two shots. NACI has suggested kids wait eight weeks between the first shot and the second. What are the reasons for those different timelines? Yeah, and this is a great question. And a lot of people have been asking me this. I think it's important to realize what the the different roles are of NACI and Health Canada. So Health Canada approves a drug based on how the company submits it. So the Pfizer trial data was 21 days. And so their job is to approve it based on all the data they have from the company. NACI is an advisory committee. And so they look not just at the, the, the company's data, but they look at other studies, other cohorts, they look at their previous experience with vaccinations, and they come up with an interval and a recommendation based on other experiences as well. And so the reason to delay the interval is really for two reasons. It's based on our experience with other vaccines. We know that in general, the longer the interval between doses, the longer and the stronger your immune response is. And we've seen that, for example, in the adult vaccine rollout, where we delayed the interval in some provinces, and we've had a much more robust immune response. So that's the first reason. Is it really based on vaccine history, principles of immunology? The delayed interval in general is better for vaccine durability. And the next reason is really to minimize side effects. So there is some Canadian data that NACI and the different provincial committees have that have looked at this risk of myocarditis with a delayed interval. So instead of the three-week interval using the eight, 12-week interval, And there is data showing a decreased risk of myocarditis with this delayed interval. So for these reasons, to increase the effectiveness of the vaccine response and to minimize side effects, they've chosen the eight-week interval. Now, some of this data is not published. And if you do look at the Mm. NASC guideline and, for example, even the Quebec Immunization Committee, there are references for this interval. And this is actually based on our real-world experience here in Canada. Uh, For example, in Quebec, uh, a delayed interval was chosen from the onset for adult first doses. And so they have their local surveillance data. And so they look at the efficacy, so how well we've protected against um, acute COVID. And then there's some data on immune response. And so just looking at real world data, for example, when you compare um, immunity here in North America, in Quebec, or in places where we've had this delayed interval versus places like Israel, where they had a very strict 21 day interval, we saw waning immunity much quicker uh, in the Israeli population than we've seen, for example, here. I, I want to talk about some of the, the the structural issues or about how the vaccine for this age group is going to be rolled out. Um, I know in Quebec, there's this is going to be happening through the school system. Appointments are already open on the province's booking platform, Click Santé. Vaccination in schools will begin next week on November 29th. What do you think of the the vaccine for this age group being rolled out within the school system? 
So I think it's a great idea. I think we need a hybrid model because some kids really do want their parents, especially the five, six-year-olds, really do want their parents with them. And so using the vaccination centers that we have for adults and just modifying them as we've done for kids, I think it's a great option to have. But it's not enough because Mm. it's not easy for all parents to take the time off work to, to really, there's a lot of logistics around organizing to get a child to a vaccine center. And we saw uh, with the vaccine rollout for the 12 to 16 year olds, I saw with my own patients, it's not always easy to make those appointments, to navigate the online system and to get that time. Um, And so having it in schools where children are, where we've been used to giving vaccines, for example, hepatitis A and, and HPV, there is an infrastructure and it really allows for more equitable vaccine distribution. So we're ensuring that kids uh, from all quint- all neighborhoods, essentially, have access to this vaccine. And, and speaking of, of access and equity, we we've covered this on the show before. You know, there's been a a lot of debate over whether our government should even be giving Canadian kids these vaccines, not from a safety standpoint, but from an equity standpoint. And I'll and I'll ask you what what parents should should do with that knowledge in a second. But first. Can you refresh listeners on how we are doing globally in terms of getting the vaccine out there? Oh, I'm glad you asked that because the, the truth is it's not not good. For every three doses given in our in our setting, there's maybe one dose given to a mid, low and middle income country. So at this point, there are um, healthcare workers, vulnerable people in low and middle income countries who've had no access to the vaccine. And it is a problem because And I think most people understand this. This pandemic will not be over until it's over everywhere. And with all of that in mind, what is the most ethical thing for us to do in this really sort of messed up global situation? You know, and I've really thought about this a lot because, again, I have so many friends and colleagues all over the world who are struggling to get their first doses. Mm. What I think it's important to realize is that uh, the decision's been made, and those those pediatric those vaccines are here in Canada right now. There are two point nine million doses that are here, and so it does no one any good to waste these vaccines. And I think um, if we reframe it, you know, Canada is in such a unique position. We have the privilege of having the vaccine. We have very good, not entire 100%, we have very good vaccination coverage. So if we do pull together as a society and we get our kids vaccinated our adults are vaccinated, we could be a model for other places as to how we can successfully get out of a pandemic. So I really think the best thing we can do is really not waste this privilege, this this incredible opportunity that we have, and to not let those doses go to waste. Fatima, thank you so much for this and also just for all your work in keeping the public informed throughout this pandemic. Really, really appreciate all everything you've done. Well, thank you so much for letting me talk to all of you today. Before we go today, we talked recently on the show about the extreme weather that has pummeled parts of Western Canada. Well, this week, already reeling from record-breaking rain and devastating floods, Atlantic Canada was hit by its own atmospheric river. Torrential rains washed out roads in Nova Scotia and Newfoundland, including parts of the Trans-Canada Highway. Oh, that's a lot of rain. We ain't seen that here before. I know, right? Emergency crews were dispatched to fix roads and bridges and reconnect communities that had been cut off because of the storms. Officials say it could take days, if not weeks, 
to get things back to normal. That's all for this week. And hey, if you like the shows this week, please give us a rating and leave a review on your podcast app. It really helps other people find us online. Frontburner is brought to you by CBC News and CBC Podcasts. The show was produced this week by Simi Bassey, Imogen Burchard, Ali Janes, Katie Toth, and Derek Vanderwijk. Our sound design was by Mackenzie Cameron and Nuruddin Korane. Our music is by Joseph Shabison of Boombox Sound. Special thanks to Andrew Criarda, Kate Partridge, and the team at CBCBC for your support this week. The executive producer of Frontburner is Nick McKay-Blocos. I'm Angela Starrett, filling in for Jamie Poisson, and I'll talk to you again soon. On 93.1 CFIS-FM, that is the Friday morning edition of Frontburner from CBC News. You can also catch Frontburner on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. When After 9 resumes, it is the Friday panel. If you are affected by dementia, you are not alone. The Alzheimer's Society of BC offers virtual support groups for caregivers and people living with early symptoms of dementia. Learn, laugh, and help others through mutual understanding. For a listing of virtual support groups or more information, visit alzbc.org. Registration is also available through the First Link Dementia Helpline at 1-800-963-6033. The Alzheimer's Society of BC Virtual Support Groups. Register once, attend when you can. The Heart Pioneer Centre is currently closed for dine-in lunch, but they are serving up takeout meals Monday through Friday. Call the centre at 250-962-6712 between 9 and 1 to order your next day's meal. You can also leave your order on the answering machine during off hours. Pick up this month's menu at the centre. For just $8, you get a great freshly cooked meal with super salad. The Heart Pioneer Centre, open for takeout meals Monday through Friday. The United Way Tree of Lights is back for this holiday season. Located atop the Coast Hotel Prince George by APA, you can become a sponsor or donate to the fundraiser by emailing information at unitedwaynbc.ca or call 250-561-1040. Follow the event on Facebook and Instagram at unitedwaynbc and check out the webpage at unitedwaynbc.ca. The annual United Way Tree of Lights, sponsored by Coast in the North Hotel by APA, Sterling Crane, King Pine Contracting, and Warmack Ventures Limited. Canada Post has put a contingency plan in place to maintain postal services. While mail delivery continues wherever possible, you may experience some delays in receiving items. If you're sending time-sensitive items, considering using Express Post or Priority Service to help ensure timely delivery and be able to track the item at canadapost.ca. If you have any questions regarding postal services, contact a Canada Post customer service team at one 607 63 Thank you for tuning in and staying tuned to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Hi, welcome to After 9. It's uh, Rez Krebs here in the host chair once again. I want to welcome Art Betke, Peter Ewart, Trudy Klassen, Herb Martin, and Eric Allen. And uh, this uh, this Friday, I thought we would talk a bit about a couple of um, pretty big issues happening in the region here. Um, first, uh, there was some interesting moves by the city and BC housing, uh, regarding, uh, homelessness here, uh, kind of a good news, bad news story is what I understand. Um, 
they got a lot of people into housing, but they also ended up destroying tents of a few people who didn't get housing. So interesting, given that uh, the BC Supreme Court decision said you can't do that. <laughs> um, and then uh, I'd also like to just, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about in the second half, uh, Wet'suwet'en version 3. 3.0. Uh, third time they've had the RCMP in there, and uh, I'd like to get the panel's thoughts on, well, how do we move forward with this if it's going to kind of continue happening? doesn't seem like uh, continuing to send snipers in is the best way to deal with it. Uh, so let's start with the, uh, you know, the, the tent city issue here in Prince George. Um, uh, you know, w- what we're seeing here is is one way, I guess, of kind of, cleaning up like uh, the i think the city's claims are that they want to deal with safety issues around tent city um but then again they left some people without tents to live in which was the you know the idea behind that uh, that court ruling trudy what do you think is happening here well i think i mean the city is facing a lot of justified pressure in terms of um you know making downtown um i guess not as like, e- like it making it easier for the businesses in downtown to survive and thrive, right? Because there's a lot of pressure there, and I think it's justified. Um, uh, how you deal with that, I mean, I don't think it's a good idea to go against the Supreme Court ruling unless you actually want to get into trouble. Uh, so, I mean, it's obvious that there was some either misunderstanding or something went wrong there. That's that's my take on that. Um, I'm very glad to hear that a number of people did get housing. That's really encouraging to hear. Uh, that that actually happened. I, I thought that actually went quicker than I thought it would. I mean, not that it ha- shouldn't have been done years ago, but it did actually happen, and, and so I'm, I was glad to see that. But, um, yeah, that's my... I mean, without having been there, it looks to me like somebody made a mistake there. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I just, I just want to clarify the uh, housing that was received as temporary, right? It's the Knights Inn that's been uh, rented. So, But, you know, it's better than certainly better than being in tents. Art, um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. What do you think is happening at the city? Is there a, is there a crossed wire here somewhere, or is this actually something that they wanted to do all along? Well, they definitely wanted to do it all along, and you can't blame them. It is a blight on the downtown. Um, now, as far as I know, uh, much as I could tell, everybody from down in the tent city is now accommodated in nice, warm facilities, and... Uh, much better off than they were for the winter, that's for sure. Um, and uh, I suspect that a lot of them, maybe even most of them, will be back camping again next year because I think they like being out there like that. It's, it's not just that they have nowhere to go. It's That's where they choose to go. Um, I'll just uh, clarify. There were, the last count I heard was five people who... Uh, did not receive housing that had their tents uh, destroyed. And there are still, I think, about five people who are camping out there still who have d- turned down the offer of housing from BC Housing. Um, Herb, what are your thoughts on this? Well, it's, it's sort of a good news story, like you said. But, um, yeah, the, the way it was done is sort of seems petty and vindictive. You know, the um, I don't know who was responsible for giving the order to do it, but... I mean, if they lost um, a court ruling and then proceeded to unilaterally um, uh, destroy uh, people's belongings and and and, um, and tents, um, well, you know, just why why would they do that? Why why wouldn't they just get people into housing? Uh, it's just 
uh, it's it's a disappointing um, end to this, uh, or it's not even the end, really, because as you said, there's still five people looking for places to stay. So it, it could have done been done much much better. Yeah, and I think I, I will just say I think that things are actually moving along pretty well at that First Avenue place. So this may all be a moot point, just be kind of the you know, the last kind of kick at the can of a kind of vindictive um, city council is what I'm seeing. They lost the, they lost their, their court injunction and now they're kind of, they're kind of, they're kind of mad. <laughs> Eric, what, what are you thinking? Well, you know, we've had, uh, there was two rulings by the court before, one in Victoria, one in Abbotsford where they tried to move these tent cities out of the parks and the court ruled that uh, they could stay in the parks. They had to have a place to live. And uh, but you could move them out. They had to be out by seven in the morning, and they couldn't go back in until seven at night. So that was sort of established in two cases. And so I really kind of wondered why the city would even bother to go to court, hmm. knowing that uh, they would probably lose, and they did. But uh, people do have to have a place to live. So so having established that, it looks like they approached them, and a number of people. We're in favor of moving into Knight's Inn, and that's what they did. And the stuff that they couldn't take, they left behind. And I think the intent was that stuff would all be destroyed, and it was explained to the individuals at the time. But then there was those that didn't want to move, and, uh, you know, and then I guess it sounds like there's maybe five people that uh, didn't want to move or ten total, and five of them, their stuff was was destroyed, which is kind of strange. I don't really know what happened there, but I don't, you know, I, can, I don't think it was intentional. They would have got all ten of them, not just five. So, yeah, I would hope. I would hope it's not intentional. I did hear, you know, speculation from folks that, oh, well, it happened on check day, right? So, um, folks might have decided to go get a motel themselves for that night, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, do whatever it is they're doing. Sure, I can't just see them going into and doing that. So. So they sort of got some people uh, into uh, better housing for the winter anyway, and the rest of them, you know, I suppose they have the right to stay there during the winter, too, if they want, but uh, it's not something that I would uh, suggest they do. No, and I think that there will be more fires if that's the case, but at the same time, I, I think that there's like a property like a property issue here, right? The Does the city have the right to, uh, to destroy abandoned property? I don't know. Like, I know that, a, you know, because I've, I've heard from, you know, through the grapevine, one guy had a tablet computer in, in his tent that was destroyed. Another woman had family photos, right? And, you know, to my mind, it's like they, they did it within 12 to 24 hours of, of them getting into those motels quite quickly, right? And I just wonder, like, what if I left, like, uh, <laughs> like left something on the street would they come with a, a, bulldo- a bulldozer and load it into a dumpster, or would they try to find out who who it belonged to? I'm, you know, I'm kind of at a loss there. Peter, what are you thinking about this? Uh, well, yeah, like I, I think that what the you know the city did there was completely un- inappropriate, right? To uh, you know bulldoze uh, you know the tents and destroy the property like that. It didn't have to happen, and it smacks of being vindictive. I, I agree with you on that. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I was glad to hear that, um, you know, that there was housing at the Days Inn, you know, at least for the next period of time put in place. Uh, I think what, what's important with this is uh, the whole question of homelessness is it's not confined to Prince George, but it's all over the place, all over North America. And um, it's a complex problem. 
and uh, it's not just a question of, of appropriate housing, but it's a uh, it's a question like of um, you know addiction treatment, uh, uh, addressing health issues, addressing poverty issues, right? So there's a whole number of things that are, that supports need to be in place as well, right? In order to um, you know move forward on this whole thing. Yeah, I'm you know. That First Avenue place is supposed to be wraparound, like wraparound services, and I, 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 I think they actually have some services at the Knights Inn. The other thing that I know we're just about to take a break here, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on um, the Union of BC Municipalities funding the appeal. Because, so, you know, Prince George is going to, is appealing this ruling, and I think that there's a real interest from municipalities to, um, to get that overturned because of the precedent that it sets. So, uh, Eric was talking about the original um, precedent about not n- not being able to remove them from uh, from camping overnight, and this one said, "Oh no, they're allowed to actually set up basically permanent structures because of the weather conditions in Prince George." Um, so that I thought that was quite interesting in in the way things are evolving in case law. Um, Trudy, what do you think? Should the Union of BC Municipalities be paying for Prince George's legal bill? Yes, because they are also they also have an interest in that, of course, right? Because it, like you said, it does make pre- case pre- precedent, and uh, you don't want to uh, have a law that basically ties your hands completely against against dealing with ten cities. I think there has to be something. Um, even though we can we can all agree that you know bulldozing people's tents twelve hours after they left that's a bit that's dicey. Um, I mean. But that doesn't negate that the city does need to, and and I have no problem with the union of municipalities funding that. Okay, we're going to take a break. We'll be back uh, after this. Minds in Motion is a weekly program provided online for people experiencing early symptoms of dementia and their care partners. Each session has a 30-minute fitness video followed by 45 minutes of social time. Sessions are offered Tuesday through Thursday from 10 to 11.30, as well as Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday from 1 to 2.30. For more information or to register, call the First Link Dementia Helpline at 1-800-963-6033 or email info.helpline at alzheimerbc.org. The Alzheimer's Society of BC is continuing their series of online webinars. Everyone is encouraged to learn more about dementia and its stark impact on Canadians through their website, alzbc.org. While there, you can also register for their free webinars or watch previous presentations. The next webinar is focused on behavior, targeted strategies for word salad, confabulation, wanting to go home, and asking for deceased relatives next Wednesday from 2 to 3. The Alzheimer's Society of BC, bringing you support and information for dementia at alzbc.org. In support of their annual Gift for Grizzlies fundraiser, the Grizzly Bear Foundation is presenting an auction for grizzlies online. This silent auction features art, photography, experiences, gifts, and more. Included is an original 48 by 36 acrylic painting by Doria Moody. All proceeds support the foundation's work to protect grizzly bears. Details on the Grizzly Bear Foundation's Auction for Grizzlies and the December 9th Give for Grizzlies fundraiser are available at grizzlybearfoundation.com. Forecast from Environment Canada. A mix of sun and cloud this morning, then clearing. A high of plus one with a wind chill this afternoon to minus eight. Increasing cloudiness tonight, a wind up to 15K. A low of minus seven with a wind chill to minus 13. For Saturday, cloudy with periods of snow in the morning and ending late in the afternoon. Wind from the southeast to 20 gusting to 40 in the morning. A high of two with a morning wind chill to minus 13. 
This is After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. And we're back. We're talking about the uh, homeless issue, I guess, here in Prince George and around the province. Um, we'll just... i got a couple more questions. Uh, Art, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on both the the appeal that's going through, but also, I mean, if, if you're right about people um, kind of... There always being people who are going to end up camping out. Um, should we just make a spot for them? Should we just have a spot somewhere in town where, yeah, if you want to pitch a tent and you want to hang out here, there, you know, uh, fill your boots. What do you think? Yeah, uh, as far as the appeal, I agree with Trudy on that. They have to do it, and it should be funded. Um, you know, they're like these people all had came from somewhere when they went camping out. They they didn't just get evicted from their homes or something like that. Um, I, I do know that sometimes people fall upon hard times and lose their homes, but for the most part, this isn't what happened. I know uh, one young couple, uh, neither of them have ever worked. They have two kids. The government supplies them low-income housing, provides their income, all their medical, everything is free, everything completely. So uh, why these people wouldn't be able to access the same services, uh, I, I don't think there's a real reason for that. So that's why I think they like camping out. Hmm, interesting. I wonder, kind of on that line, you know, we ha- there are some people I'm sure that like camping out, but I understand that one of the criticisms of kind of uh, delivering all the services and prioritizing the people who are in the tent cities for... Uh, for housing, it it actually makes them queue jumpers in terms of the BC housing system. Um, there are lots of people who are couch surfing right now who don't have the you know can't find something that they can afford in town, and they're on the BC housing list, but they're getting they're getting bumped right. Um, and what happened? Maybe, maybe they end up in a tent, and then is that what it is that what it takes to kind of to, for BC housing to prioritize you because it, it's visible and therefore it's being dealt with. Herb, you know, we got a few things on the hopper here. What do you think? Well, I, I don't agree that the other that the municipalities uh, should have banded together to pursue uh, further core challenges. Look, this is it's a good thing that um, uh, society can provide basic housing for people that don't have it. And um, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe we should be looking at a, at a, a tent city someplace that um, would at least supply some some basic amenities for people who are really desperate. Uh, you know, Prince George had one actually, uh, where the tenant, where the soccer fields are now. At one point, there were uh, there was a tent city every spring, as uh, tree planters came to town, and um, uh, I don't think there were that many problems with uh, with that. And um, uh, you know, that's possibly another place where or an area where people could be could be housed again. Uh, they're close to the uh, the aquatic center. There's bathrooms there. Um, you know, just just off the top of my head, there's that's a, that's a possibility. Interesting, Eric. What do you think? There's a couple of issues here. You know, the the municipality appeal, whether we should have a permanent place for people to to camp out. What do you think? Well, <clears throat> I mean, once you build a permanent place for them to camp out, you also take the responsibility for it. And so, anything goes wrong there, anybody gets hurt, whatever, we know how it goes with red tape, then the city's responsible. And uh, those things are going to happen. I mean, you become the landlord, uh, so you have to do it right. You don't just give them a piece of land and say, well, you can go on there and do what you want. If it's your land, you're responsible for what's going on there. So there's some legal ramifications. So I don't know if that's the answer. The other thing is that 
you know, if we give everybody too much of a good thing, and I sure as hell don't consider this a good thing, but if you give it too much and you move one out to a better uh, situation, somebody else will move in. So we have to solve the overall problem, which is homeless people and people unable to get work and, and, you know, sort of live a normal life. And so that has to be all-inclusive. We have to deal with it in terms of, you know, there's a criminal element involved, there's some people with some mental problems involved, and there's legitimately homeless people involved. And that's what they're kind of looking at on First Avenue. And then once they sort of get that into place and they have to work with some of these other people and try to find ways to get them into a situation where they can improve their well-being and hopefully get well, you know, over the long haul. Uh, just making more space for more people to move in with the tent is, is to me, is not even close to being a solution. Right. Peter, what are your thoughts on a permanent a permanent place for people to, par- to tent and the uh, Union of BC Municipalities funding the appeal? Well, the the union of uh, BC municipalities, like uh, I, I really think that the money should be spent on more housing, not on appeals that go on forever and so kinds of money, right? You know, so if the, if the city is serious about it, I think they should drop the appeal. And in terms of um, you know, kind of tent city, I think that's a, an idea that should be explored talking about there, there's various issues involved with that, and uh, as Herb said, uh, you know, like we do have precedent, you know, with uh, and so on, so uh, that's definitely an area that should be explored. Okay, it sounds like you're kind of cutting in and out there, Peter, but uh, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk about this whatsoever issue. Thanks. The Alzheimer's when you donate to Hope Air on Tuesday, you'll bring a smile to a patient's face, and your gift will be matched. With your support, families can overcome barriers of cost and distance to focus on what's important, your health. This Giving Tuesday, Hope Air's goal is to raise $35,000, which will fund 100 more flights. For more information and to double your impact on Giving Tuesday, visit HopeAir.ca. Free caregiving support groups are still available for family or friend caregivers of seniors. The online meetings take place the last Tuesday of each month at 6.30. A joint presentation of the Native Friendship Centre, Healthy Aging by United Way, Family Caregivers of BC, and your Council of Seniors. Free online family friend caregiver of seniors support group. 6.30, the last Tuesday of every month. Email facilitator at pgnfc.com to take part. PG Queer Cafe hosts a monthly meeting on the fourth Sunday of each month in a relaxed and safe atmosphere. Attendance is free with meetups adhering to Health Canada guidelines. This month's event is brunch at Busker's Rock Merch and venue. Full details are available on the PG Queer Cafe Facebook page. Be sure to check the page on the day of the event for any changes. PG Queer Cafe's monthly brunch, 11 o'clock Sunday at Busker's Rock Merchant Venue, the corner of 15th and Victoria. You're listening to After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. And we're back and we're going to switch gears and talk a bit about uh, a... Uh, Another issue that has some some similarities to this uh, the movement of homeless people, considering 80% of the people on the street in Prince George are indigenous. Um, so the Wet'suwet'en, once again, were uh, blockading the move to put this uh, 
the CGL pipeline underneath a river. Um, you know, they have this uh, issue with the potential for that that pipeline leaking into that water supply and poisoning fish and, and drinking water, etc. Um, and, of course, the RCMP came in very highly militarized. So I'd just love to hear, um, you know, it, whether or not we agree with the Wet'suwet'en being able to prevent CGL from going through, what do we think about the RCMP's approach here? Uh, they also, I mean, they arrested two journalists, one of whom had her assignment paper, like, pinned to her jacket, right? Equivalent of a press pass. Uh, Trudy, what do you think about the, the way it was done here? It's not a good look for the RCMP. I, I can see that maybe they were just hoping that by coming in, looking very strong, very fierce, that that would uh, inhibit any resistance and that it would be more peaceful. Um, you know, that whole intimidation aspect, um, I can see maybe that was part of their thinking. Um, arresting journalists, like, that's that's like so un-Canadian. I don't understand why they had to do that. Um so it it wasn't a good a good a good look for them. Um, I guess that's yeah that's my opinion on that part. Yeah, there's that arresting of journalists. There was another case out in uh, Labrador where a guy he, he ended up being charged even with mischief. I think um, APTN journalist, and you know it's kind of a disturbing trend. I think it makes me think. Well, that and it gone. shouldn't happen in a civilized society, right? Yeah. Like in a democracy, um, because we depend on our media to let us know what what. Um, our public servants are doing and that needs to happen yeah art what do you think about this whole situation oh uh, yeah i agree it wasn't a, a good look for the rcmp but i can understand uh, why they're doing it i mean you have to be prepared for anything if you don't really know what's going to happen if you go in with underwhelming force and you could fail and there could be some serious consequences so i can see them uh, taking all precautions um, as far as arresting a journalist, I don't, they, they've been doing dumb things like that lately, so not surprised at all. Uh, I just have to wonder, though, uh, you know, uh, why the protests? So, like, is this coming from within the Wet'suwet'en people, or is this being incited from without? I recall the last go-round, uh, watching a, a video, and... Uh, a reporter was interviewing one of the Wet'suwet'en people, and she kept deferring to a white guy. It looked like the white guy was uh, uh, running the show, and he seemed to be in charge. And uh, it turns out he was from Ontario somewhere. So I wonder what's really going on with that. Yeah, my understanding is that uh, there is there are, the hereditary chiefs of one of the houses are directing this. Um, I'm actually acquaintances with one of them, Frank Alec, who uh, is pretty strongly opposed to this project. Um, Herb, what do you think about the RCMP coming in with guns blazing? I mean, no one gets shot. Let me go, let me back up. Uh, <laughs> so that's that's kind of the, uh, the general take on this. <laughs> you know, the, the RCMP are, uh, you know, eager at the bits. And, and I, I watched the video of um, them arresting from the, uh, from the uh, so-called land defenders viewpoint. And... Um, and I was actually struck at how gentle and, uh, and patient the RCMP were. Uh, they had waited over an hour for people to um, come out of, the, of a building. When that didn't happen, then they went in. Um, you know, the, the 
the journalists could have come out at the uh, an hour before, and I'm sure they would not have been arrested. But they claim to want to be in uh, or um, embedded, so they they got their wish. They they were embedded and they wit- witnessed the arrests uh, firsthand. So I don't really have too much uh, sympathy for them. Um, I, I don't have uh, very much sympathy for the so-called land defenders either. Um, some of them, you know, uh, uh, I think four of them flew out from um, Montreal on Air Canada to um, uh, support uh, the Mohawks, uh, to support uh, Native sovereignty in B.C. Uh, 200 years ago, um, Mohawks wouldn't have gotten out of Ontario alive. So, um, you know, this is, um, uh, they, they should maybe reflect on the ironies of, of the situation. Um you know, you got uh, Molly Wickham, who's um, uh, in the same video, her blue eyes glinting in the sunlight as she screamed at the RCMP that they were invaders and to get off her land. So, yeah, it was. Uh, there's a. There's a, You can look at it as a theater of the absurd. Uh, you know, worthy of uh, Ionesco, Beckett, or Pinter, really. The um, this is um, this is just foolishness. Um, and nothing is going to be resolved. And in standoffs with the RCMP, this is all grandstanding. Uh, Molly Wickham and the others are um, uh, doing this for uh, public benefit. Uh, Leonard DiCaprio has set up a $400,000 GoFundMe uh, 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 project for for their uh, legal bills. So they're, they're, you know, this is um, this is just theater. This is this is absurd. It doesn't solve a thing, and it, like you say, it's the third time in three years. If they if they really want to pursue native sovereignty, take it through the to the courts. Um, this is uh, this is just grandstanding, and and it's ridiculous. I kind of wonder. I mean, that point about taking it through the courts. Uh, you know, Molly Wickham is a member of uh, of one of the clans there. I just looked her up, um, and. Uh, Adopted member, yeah. Yeah, and she, you know, she, she actually, I guess, runs governance for the office of the Wet'suwet'en. Um, you know, the the courts do uh, recognize a certain kind of uh, Aboriginal title, but it's very, it's it's limited, right? It's been um, currently, uh, yeah. certainly, been expanding through like that those multi-decade, multi-million-dollar court cases. Um, although I kind of think politically, maybe these kinds of uh, these kinds of operations might also be useful for the if we're talking about the just from a strategic perspective for moving the dial on recognizing indigenous sovereignty. It's a it's a you know I I, I well, see this as a movement and maybe it needs some it has multiple iterations right multiple ways of attra- attacking. Yeah. Delma Gook is, was was uh, what I think twenty years over twenty years ago now, 97. and it and it um, they they said at that point that uh, further further court uh, cases had to be uh, um, pursued to to delineate exactly what uh, native sovereignty or not even it's not they never said native sovereignty but native overs, oversight anyway onto their lands what was but but the what Delma Gook said was that they had traditional uh, the traditional leaders had. Um, Power over the traditional uses of the land, and um, uh, you know, it seems to me these people are just trying to take it um, uh, through the court of public opinion rather than actually pursuing it uh, in a in a venue where it would actually make a difference. I wonder about that, though. I mean, I, we're just going to go a little bit further along this one. We only have about a minute. 
Um, so, you know, Delgamuk took about 20 years, right, to, to get that decision. But in the decision, they set out the rules for doing those things, but they didn't actually say to the Wet'suwet'en, well, here you go, here's your title. And then it took until 2014 with with uh, Sokotin to get uh, a court case finished all the way through all the appeals. It also took about 20 years. Um, that used those rules to, to prove Aboriginal title, right? So, you know, decades and millions of dollars for, uh, for these groups who the BC government agrees have legitimacy, have, have title, but in order to define it, you have to do all these things. Whereas, hey, the BC government just kind of existed out of nowhere, right? By planting flags and and drawing lines on maps. I wonder, like, <laughs> I kind of wonder whether should they have to go through all that or is there should there be more better mechanisms for making these decisions and you know i guess along well i mean there are there are people uh, in the wet'suwet'en i mean all of those like ellis ross was saying uh i was just watching some a few of his videos recent videos he was saying like all the elected band members all the elected uh, (laughs) people have agreed with uh lng and he said uh, by deferring, by saying, oh, it's the hereditary chiefs that should have jurisdiction over this issue is like someone saying the queen has the right to make a decision here for Prince George because she's our hereditary, uh, you know, ruler. And so he makes that case. And, and plus he just, he tries to, I think, I think the rest of us would prefer, um, like Thomas King says in his book, The Inconvenient Indian, the rest of us would prefer the sav- the noble savage the dead Indian instead of the live one who is complex, different, and needs actually a job, needs to be able to provide for their own family. And that's what we're, that's something that gets forgotten. That's a great point to end on. We got to, we got to cut it there. Thanks everyone. Have a great weekend. After nine is a daily presentation of CFIS FM. After nine is produced by Alan Wishart, Echo Wiley, Trudy Clausen, and Rez Krebs. Executive producer is Reg Fair with technical assistance from Stephen Smith. Additional contributors include CBC News and the National Campus and Community Radio Association. Theme music is by The Ebbs. For a rebroadcast of today's program, check out the podcast link at CFISFM.ca. To provide feedback or suggestions for the show, please email CFISFM at yahoo.ca. Owned and operated by the Prince George Community Radio Society, you're listening to CFIS-FM Prince George, a not-for-profit community radio station broadcasting with five